0: Welcome to this podcast of the Sunday Message from Hope Gateway, a United Methodist community in Portland, Maine.
1: If you live locally, we'd love to have you join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Visit our website at www.hopegateway.com to learn more. But whether you live near or far, we hope you find this message to be meaningful. Wherever you are, join us in doing justice loving-kindness, and walking humbly with God. Worship series on non-toxic Christianity. It's not really a very high bar, is it? (laughs) We just really want a Christianity that's non-toxic. So we're going to be talking about some um, various toxic ideas um, that are out there in the Christian world over the next few weeks. And we're hoping, actually, there'll be a few other reprises of this series um, throughout the next year because there's a few other topics that we could talk about and um, find ways for you to let us know about that coming up. So, But today we're talking about um, the toxicity of the idol of Christian unity. And um, I know a little bit about unity because I'm a United Methodist. And the United Methodist Church came by that name through not a real intentional process of having United as the first name in our name, but here we are, stuck with it, and um, kind of obsessed about this idea of unity. And I've been uncomfortable with it for a while because um, at various gatherings, there's all these songs that we sing about unity, and it feels a little like manipulation, because when there's a disagreement or there's a discussion to be had and people aren't of all one of opinion and we keep saying, we need unity, it really is just saying, don't talk about that thing that we disagree about, which isn't actually unity. So, speaking of Methodism, um, John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist movement. He was an Anglican priest in England himself, but he started um, a new church called the Methodists, which was a derogatory term, but anyway, we'll get to that later. So he um, said this. He said many, many things, but he said this. Though we cannot think alike, may we not love. Alike. May we not be of one heart, though we are not of one opinion. Without a doubt, without all doubt, may we, we may, herein all the children of God may unite, notwithstanding these smaller differences. May we not love alike. So there's a challenge, right, in unity, because many times it means avoiding difficult conversations or not even acknowledging that difference of opinion exists. But that lack of acknowledgement um, doesn't serve us well. And we pretend that we have to have unity of mind. Or we avoid recognizing that we have various experiences and thoughts. We don't have an opportunity to learn and grow because we try so hard to achieve an ideal of unity that I actually believe is a misunderstanding of what Jesus said. But we'll get to that later. Aaron Van Voorhees is a pastor at Central Avenue Church in Glendale, California. And he shared a quote on, he shared some thoughts on Facebook, but he began them with these two quotes with Jesus says, love your enemies. And James Baldwin says, if I love you, I have to make you conscious of the things you don't see. If I love you, I have to make you conscious, aware, of the things that you don't see. That's love. So Aaron says, Often I hear Christians on both the right and the left use Jesus to say that we must pursue unity and civility above all else. They imply that it's a sin to get too polemic about issues like racism, guns, LGBTQ rights, immigration, economic exploitation, and climate change. But maybe our loving our enemies can mean holding them accountable for the values, for their views that harm others. Maybe the best way to love anyone is to help them be more loving, more humane. It's interesting to note that Jesus did not say, don't have enemies. He certainly had enemies among the ruling elites, and certainly seems like they didn't feel very loved by him. Rather, I think they felt castigated and judged. So let's dispense with the focus on unity and civility. This doesn't mean that it's okay to engage in name calling. It's not. But frankly, I care more about those suffering than the delicate feelings of the irresponsible and the privileged. Their calls for unity and civility are really just an attempt to avoid change and difficulty. It's a lot there, isn't it? A lot there. So the scripture used to support this ideal of unity in the church is from the Gospel of John. And it's a prayer that Jesus is praying right before he's arrested. He says many many things to God and among them he prays for unity for his followers. But this is not advice saying you should do this. He's saying this is my longing as I am finishing the work that I have been left to do, I pray that the thing that comes after me will be good. And honestly, (laughs) we have a lot of history that's good and bad, right? And some of it has a lot to do with this unity. Because there's a few denominations in the world today, if you didn't notice. So, These words from John, the Gospel of John, in the 17th chapter, beginning in verse 17. Immerse them in the truth. The truth your voice speaks. In the same way you sent me into this world, I am sending them. It is entirely for their benefit that I have set myself apart so that they may be set apart by the truth. I'm not asking solely for their benefit. This prayer is also for all the believers who will follow them and hear them speak. Father, may they all be one as you are in me and I am in you. May they be in us, for by this unity the world will believe that you sent me. All the glory you have given me I pass on to them. May the glory unify them and make them as one as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be refined, so that all will know that you sent me. And you love them the same way you love me. Jesus longs for those who will follow him after he's gone to be connected to one another in the way that Jesus is connected to God. This ideal of unity that Jesus is longing for, is something that I have experienced here in Portland through my multi-faith and ecumenical community. We have a beautiful community here of religious leaders who have a lot of mutual respect for one another. And we do things together and we stand together as witnesses on the side of justice and love regularly. We do things like wash feet at Preble Street on Monday, Thursday, together, Catholic and UCC and Episcopal and Methodists, and we stood with signs that say Jesus built bridges, not walls, on the Casco Bay Bridge. Seems like Christian unity to me. we showed up with intention at Bet Ha'am Synagogue in South Portland after the shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. And we're there standing together in a room that was overflowing. And we went together to attend noon prayers at the mosque after the attacks in New Zealand at the mosque and we were there together, praying. Those are times when I experience unity as a witness to the love of God. When different denominations, traditions, and faiths stand together, those who aren't a part of those traditions can see that we stand for love and not hate for compassion, and not condemnation. And we make a better reputation for God when we do that. Today we are celebrating 10 years as a reconciling congregation. We and other congregations are a part of a network of communities that claim, even though we are a part of the United Methodist system, we have declared that we stand outside its oppressive policies. So it's not all celebration. Because we are a part of the United Methodist Church that has oppressive policies that we choose to stand outside of, or try to stand outside of. Because the reality is that the United Methodist Church has for decades been discriminating against queer persons and congregations within the system have have been resisting that discrimination for decades as well. So here's a little bit of that history. In May, 1984, the General Conference, which is the global gathering of the United Methodist Church, gathered in Baltimore and amended the Book of Discipline, which is our book of rules and regulations and policies, to state that no self-avowed practicing homosexual shall be ordained or appointed in the United Methodist Church. The next morning, after that vote was passed, after it was, that amendment was passed, About a dozen unified and connected people gathered outside the Civic Center in Baltimore and passed out brochures to general conference delegates and visitors, inviting their congregations to become reconciling congregations as an act of dissent in response to the unwelcoming policies by the United Methodist Church. Within one month, two congregations voted to become reconciling congregations. Symbolically, at both ends of the continent, one in New York City and one in California. And by the end of the year, nine reconciling congregations existed. And Ophelia works for the Reconciling Ministries Network, so she can tell us how many there are now. There are over 1,130. Right over 1,130 reconciling congregations exist um, in the United States, and one. Just joined the network in Africa. Um.
0: 1,000 other companies. Mm. 12,000.
1: More More than that. I don't know. People should know that, right? (laughs) Somebody in this (laughs) room. Sam, you should know that. So at every general conference since 1984, and before then as well, the United Methodist Church has upheld and or added to discriminatory policies to the Book of Discipline and the social principles. And when it hasn't done that, it's tried to avoid the conversation entirely. So in 2016, it was decided that we should really have the conversation we'd been avoiding for years. And the commission on the way forward was proposed by the Council of Bishops and approved by the 2016 General Conference to do a complete examination and possible revision of every paragraph of the Book of Discipline concerning human sexuality and explore options that help maintain and strengthen the unity of the church. That's a quote. <laughs> From that process, several plans were proposed, and special a special session of the general conference was called and held in February of 2019. The most restrictive, punitive, and vindictive policies were solidly passed and will go into effect January of 2020. In the United Methodist Church, clergy can be brought up on charges and face trials for various offenses. But the only offense with a clearly defined punishment is officiating at a same-sex wedding. A clergy member who performs a same-sex wedding will face a minimum of one year suspension without pay for the first offense and loss of credentials for the second. We also passed legislation that defines the wording in our Book of Discipline, which is a self-avowed practicing homosexual. And now we have a definition for what that means. Living, a person who is living in a same-sex marriage, domestic partnership, or civil union, or a person who publicly states he or she is a practicing homosexual. This is where we're at, friends. We don't know what will happen in January. We don't know how many charges will be brought. We don't know what the game plan is of the conservatives who who worked so hard to get these restrictions passed. They may hold off until after General Conference 2020 to bring the full weight of their authority because they may be waiting to see what negotiation for a split or a dissolution or a maintaining of unity may happen at General Conference 2020. So this brings us to the other plan that was passed at General Conference 2019, which is a path for individual congregations to disaffiliate from the United Methodist Church. Alan and I have been working with a small group of United Methodists in New England to lay out a clear process for discernment, education, and intentional listening so that this path that has been created by General Conference and also by our annual conference is possible for congregations who want to pursue it. And our leadership team this week made an official vote that we as Hope Gateway will be engaging in this eight-month process of discernment. And next Sunday, after worship, we're going to have a community conversation, and we're going to talk more about what that means, and what that looks like, and what it involves. We have not decided to start this process with the foregone conclusion that we are going to disaffiliate from the United Methodist Church. But we have decided to take the authority, power, and control we currently have in a chaotic system. This process will help us know who we are and where we stand no matter what options what the options are after General Conference 2020 and our New England Annual Conference makes decisions about its identity our identity as well but what is true right now the place where I stand is that 10 years ago, because Geraldine Guittard, who's 92, urged us to take on the process of becoming a reconciling congregation. And we took that process on and we made a decision to become a reconciling congregation 10 years ago. This has shaped our identity and made us who we are as a congregation today. We have lived into this identity in powerful ways. And many people have found a faith home here because of our stance of full inclusion, an affirmation of our LGBTQIA siblings. People who identify as queer and those who identify as straight have felt welcome here because we are a reconciling congregation. This is hard, and it's not easy, and it's not going to be an easy conversation, but it's going to be an honest conversation, and it's going to take us to a clearer place of who we want to be in the mess that we find ourselves in. But what really gives me joy is the fact that people have found a faith home here, and Just a few weeks ago, there was a wedding here. Randy and Pete got married. (laughs) And before, um, right before the wedding started, Randy took me aside and said some words to me that broke my heart open in sadness and in joy. And so I said to him when I was preaching this sermon, I said, I'd really like you to say something like that to the congregation. So um, he's going to share a little bit of his experience here at Hope Gateway with, with you.
0: I'm not sure what I was thinking when I spoke to Sarah directly before the wedding and made her cry. <laughs> That's never a good plan, but... <laughs> um, What Sarah knows about my background, I'm going to share just a small bit so that you understand the context. I grew up in Missouri and um, had quite an adventure with all of that. And in 2015, I had been divorced for a year and was attending a church that, in no uncertain terms, told me that they knew God's will better for my life than I did and that I needed to be there and submit to them. I shouldn't call myself gay because that was sin and it was basically spreading sin And there was an election, local citywide election, deciding whether or not to allow um, the current LGBTQ protections for health care and housing and things like that to stand. And the churches had risen up and gotten it back on the ballot to remove. I had spoken uh, in an interview about my perspective on it as a Christian. And then the following Sunday, the pastor stood up and without naming me said, you may have seen on the news... That this is going on But we want to make it clear What our position is And for the sake of the kingdom And our ability to stand For the things of the kingdom You all need to vote To remove those protections And I'm sitting there In the church with this Right So I didn't stay in that church Very much longer And um, my ex-wife and her fiance And the kids and I Moved somewhere we could start fresh Right We moved to Maine We didn't know anybody here We'd never been here But it was a fresh start And I started researching where are churches that are going to be safe, where are churches that are going to actually live welcome, and where I can bring my kids and not be afraid that behind the scenes, they're being told that dad is in sin because he calls himself gay, right? So I found Hope Gateway. It's the only church that I could find that actually embodied that online. I was like, wow, this is crazy. I started listening to messages. We showed up. But I was kind of skeptical. And then we sang the song that we started out this morning with For Gay and For Stray, A Place at the Table. And I started crying because this wasn't just like, hey, we put it on the website so you'll come in. It's you're really a part of things. And I started looking and our church embodied the body of Christ with diverse race and culture, male and female and all this. And I said, this is a place that really means it. And we became part of this because that's the background So what I talked with Sarah about then was that you guys have become such a spiritual home for me and in many ways have saved my faith, right? And we felt so comfortable with you that we could bring in family and friends from across the world, people that aren't even out publicly where they live, but they would come in and I knew, Pete knew without a question how they would be received, what would and wouldn't be said to them, it was safe for us to bring people that mattered into this place. And it was all confirmed beautifully through the whole thing. And we've had several people come to us since then and say that they love the wedding, but among the most beautiful parts of it were the people from the church and the community they experienced. They've never been in a place like that where they felt so loved and it was such a community. And so I just want to say thank you You guys have taken risks and have been in protest for a decade now. But what you're doing, despite the risks, matters. It matters to me. It matters to my family. It matters to how we raise our kids. It matters to the community. And even people who don't attend here know what this place stands for. So I just wanted to say thank you and to give you kind of that perspective as like you're acting, you've been acting out of principle and out of heart, but I want to tell you what that translates into in real lives. So thanks for the chance to share that.
1: Thank you, Randy. So another scripture that is quoted about unity, is Colossians 3-4. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Some translations say unity. But I think because of our misunderstanding of what unity is, And thinking that it's uniformity, I think the word harmony really brings it about. Because harmony doesn't exist if we're all the same. But harmony is a beautiful gift when we all bring our best selves and our differences to make something beautiful together. May it continue to be so here at Hope Gateway. Amen.